According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, a little under 40% of marriages end in divorce. That's about two in every five marriages. I don't think there's research in Australia about churchgoers or Christians, but studies from America have found that for Christians, divorce rates are between equal and about half of the general population. So at best that would mean one in every five. Statistics tell a story, but we all know that every one of those numbers represents real people. Each one is a painful experience of disappointment and grief. Statistics about viewing pornography are less reliable than for marriage and divorce. Uh, One study I read claimed that during a sample month, about 80% of American internet users accessed explicit websites. 80%. A study by the Barna Group found that 50-60% to of self-identified Christian men viewed explicit material at least monthly. Now, these statistics may not be as accurate, but they open a window on what anecdotally we know to be true. Sexual sin, sexual, sexual brokenness is a reality we need to face. We need to face it because Jesus did. As a church, we're reading the Sermon on the Mount. We're reading Jesus' call to his followers to stay salty, to stand out as different because we're called into the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus says today is pretty straightforward. The challenge for us today is how are we to be a community that stays salty in marriage and singleness? How can we live our sexuality with faithfulness? Jesus is talking here about a serious issue, something that needs to be addressed straightforwardly and sensitively. For most of us, Jesus' words will expose our sin and guilt, and that's good because then we can hear even louder the truth of the Father's love, Christ's grace, and the Spirit's power for us. For many, Jesus' words bring shame, because you've been sinned against. And one of the things Jesus says is what happened to you was wrong. And Jesus knows what it's like to experience shame, undeserved shame, But he doesn't see you as shamed, but as precious and loved. And I wanted to start with those words of gospel comfort because Jesus' words are confronting. In fact, one of the commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount, the one by D.A. Carson, Don Carson, is when Jesus confronts the world. Jesus' words are confronting. But starting with the good, good news allows us to take Jesus' words seriously. Uh, Last week we heard the pattern of this part of Jesus' teaching. You have heard X was said, it's a quote from the Old Testament law, and then Jesus says, I say to you, why? Jesus teaches the wholehearted, greater righteousness of the law in the kingdom. Last week Jesus spoke about anger and conflict and many of us thought, you can't be serious. But I reckon in this passage... What Jesus says sounds even more impossible. So read with me from verse 27, Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
The law of Moses says, you shall not commit adultery. Technically, adultery is cheating with someone to whom, with whom you're not married. So if you are married, sexual activity with anyone who's not your spouse, that's adultery. If you're not married, it's sex with someone married to someone else. That's the limited technical definition. But in the broader story of the Bible, it's about any sexual relationship outside of marriage outside of a lifelong public commitment between one man and one woman. I reckon in our culture, even the command, you shall not commit adultery, sounds extreme. It's actually been that way all throughout history. Even if people paid lip service to faithfulness, their actions told another story. But in our culture, yeah, we're a bit confused, aren't we? We're not a fan of cheating, but it makes good TV. And even when it comes to faithfulness in real life, we put in lots of exceptions. Yes, we like faithfulness, but what if you're not fulfilled in marriage? What if marriage stifles authentic expression of your identity? What if you found true love with another man or woman? So before we even get to Jesus, but I tell you, this is shocking. And so to understand this, we need to appreciate the big story, God's big story of marriage. And it goes right back to the start of the scriptures. Genesis 1, God creates humanity as male and female and he makes us both together and individually, humans bear the image of God. And he gives humanity, male and female, the task of completing the work of creation to continue to fill and subdue, to bring order and completeness to the world God made. Genesis 2 paints a different but complementary picture. Man and woman complement each other. And we get more detail. Marriage is a man and woman freely coming together, united as a new family, as they are one flesh with each other. But then we get to Genesis 3, and we get to the rest of the Bible story. Relationships go bad very fast. Instead of safe, loving, faithfulness, There's manipulation, lies, threats, control, abuse, unfaithfulness. And you don't need me to tell you this because in a greater or lesser degree, we all bear the scars of this reality. And it's because of this reality, God gives his law to Moses, you shall not commit adultery. It's a good law calling Israel to live the way marriage was meant to be. But Jesus goes further. Wholehearted righteousness isn't just managing to control yourself enough so you don't physically betray your spouse. The greater righteousness Jesus calls his people to is being faithful to him or her, our spouse, with our eyes and our thoughts. If you thought, don't be angry, don't lash out with insults was hard, I think this is harder. Now verse 28, looking lustfully, Jesus isn't saying we can't appreciate beauty whether that's appearance or character, it's not noticing. Jesus is calling out the times we keep looking, staring, having thoughts of taking and having that which isn't ours to have. Now, Jesus is particularly talking to men. In fact, he does this in this whole section because he's calling men to take responsibility in this way. He doesn't say, women put on potato sacks. But men control your eyes. 
Though, Jesus' words cut both ways. Both men and women commit adultery in their heart. Uh, It's sometimes said that men are more tempted by a woman's appearance and women are more tempted by non-physical things. I don't think that's necessarily true. You need to know your own heart and the way that sin has warped and twisted the loves in your heart. But regardless, I take Jesus' words about adultery in the heart that it doesn't have to be sexual longing. Jesus is calling out any unfaithfulness in our hearts. It could be you are infatuated because someone else is more caring or attentive than your spouse and you start wishing that they were yours. Adultery in the heart. But why does it matter? Why does Jesus care about our eyes and our thoughts? Surely looking and fantasizing doesn't hurt anyone. It's often how... We approach ethical questions. Who does it hurt? That's not the Bible's way of thinking about godliness and and ethics. Jesus doesn't just call us to not hurt others. The deeper question we need to ask is, what is it for? What is sexual desire for? And God's answer is sexual desire isn't for you to want to lust after, to consume whoever you want. Our sexual desire isn't so we can treat others as objects for our satisfaction. Sexual desire is for for marriage. And for example, the Song of Songs is a beautiful celebration of this proper place of desire. And so asking who does it harm, that's not the right question, though adultery in the heart does harm. If you are married, it hurts the relationship It hurts your spouse. They are meant to be the object of your attention and desire. It leads to bitterness and resentment building against your spouse because they can't live up to your lustful fantasies in your mind. It harms the person, even the person you're looking at, even if they never know. It harms them because God made them to be honoured as a full human being. They aren't a two-dimensional object for your consumption. Now, Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago, before the printing press, before colour magazines, before the internet, before some of the clothing styles popular today. Now, I can't say it's harder to do what Jesus says today than it was back then, but it's definitely no easier. There is sexualised imagery and talk and writing Everywhere. So what's Jesus' answer to adultery in the heart? He says, do whatever it takes to get rid of it. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now, I think Jesus is deliberately exaggerating. If he meant this literally, surely his disciples would have not just gouged out one eye but two. And we read about that in the Bible. But that Jesus is being shockingly provocative isn't reason to take him less seriously but more. Jesus' point is do whatever it takes to get rid of sin and temptation. Some people think maturity in the Christian life is about being able to get as close as possible to temptation without actually sitting, to sit as close as possible to the fire without actually getting burnt. 
But the truth is, Christian maturity is learning to recognise temptation and then run a mile from it. When it's a when the command says to leave, when you get the emergency notice on your phone that says there's a bushfire, get out of here, the wise thing to do is get out as soon as possible, not wait until it's too late. It's the same in our Christian maturity, and that's Jesus' point. So where are you tempted in this sin? What do you need to cut off to grow in faithfulness and purity? Are there people or places you need to avoid? Uh, Do you need to get rid of your smartphone? A dumb phone with a black and white screen makes calls and texts just fine. Do you need to cancel Netflix or dump your TV? Defriend your high school crush on Facebook? Uh, One of the things I do, and you may not want to hear this, but your minister is a sexual sinner. I have given in to these temptations. So I run accountability software on all my devices. It tracks every website I visit and sends a report each week to Anita and a few friends. Uh, The software I use is the one up on the screen. It's called Accountable to You. Uh, Covenant Eyes is another service. Uh, We also have a filter on our home, NBN. Uh, One of the things I've had to learn to do recently is I hide the video section, the reels, on Facebook. Sometimes churches use that section and they put up a great little video that's really encouraging and and insightful and helpful, but then you know how the algorithm works, the infinite scroll, the next video comes up and it is almost always something sexualized. So I've just hidden that section on Facebook. I don't need to see it. We also need to have courage to get help. So talk with me or a trusted brother or sister in Christ and get help. It's awkward to, to own up isn't it? But this is serious. It's serious enough that Jesus warns us of hell if we continue in sin. Just let this sink in. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's better not to have a smartphone. Better not to have Netflix. Now, there is grace and forgiveness for sexual sinners. Jesus' death paid for the sin of the vilest offender. But Jesus means what he says. He takes faithfulness seriously, not only with our bodies, but with our eyes and hearts too. In the next little block, Jesus does something a bit different from what we've heard so far. Instead of quoting a you shall not law, Jesus refers to a different kind of law, a Conditional law, a law that explains what to do in a broken situation. So verse 31, it has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Uh, This is from Deuteronomy 24. Uh, The law isn't commanding divorce, it's not saying it's a good thing, but this law regulates the sad reality of living in a sinful world. In the situation where a marriage ends in divorce, According to the law, the husband can't just callously kick out his wife. He must provide her with something in writing, something that says she is no longer his wife and therefore is free to marry another. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 24 up on the screen. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house and the law goes on to deal with that particular situation. But for our purpose, that's enough. Jesus is dealing with this general situation. Now, one of the key questions about this law is, what does indecent mean? It probably isn't adultery, because in the law of Moses, 
adultery was punishable by death. So indecency is something other than adultery. And and in Jesus' time, it had been interpreted pretty loosely. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus interprets the law this way. He that desires to be to be divorced from his wife for any cause whatsoever, and many such causes happen among men, let him let him in writing give assurance that he will never use her as his wife any more. Any cause whatsoever. And there are many, many causes. She snores. She's not a great cook. That's the way blokes in the time of Jesus were treating their wives. But Jesus says, in the kingdom of heaven, marriage isn't treated lightly. Jesus' people won't end marriages for any reason whatsoever because we value enduring faithfulness. Verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, the details here are tricky, but the point is clear. The biblical vision of marriage is until we are parted by death, we don't begin marriage lightly, we don't end marriage lightly. But the details are tricky. So first thing to note, Jesus is speaking to husbands. In first century Judea, women pretty much couldn't initiate divorce So even as Jesus talks about adultery and he lays the the weight heavily on the shoulders of men, not because women are weak or passive, but because there's a difference between being, between sinning and being sinned against. If you are sinned against, you are not to blame. So Jesus is telling the blokes of his day, you need to take this seriously. But still, what is he saying about adultery? How does divorce make someone a victim of adultery? It could be that if a man callously divorces his wife and then marries another woman, well, Jesus says the bloke is really committing adultery against his first wife. He's being unfaithful to her. It could be that by divorcing his wife, she might be thought of in the community as being an adulteress, even though she has not been unfaithful. That's the first part of the, what he says. The second part is, really does make you scratch your head. It makes her commit adultery. It might be that in the case that the wife has been faithful, she wants to remain married to her husband, but he divorces her, then if she marries another man, and in the ancient world, for economic reasons, that almost always had to happen, well, she never wanted to get married to anyone else And in that case, this new marriage is another factor that compounds the first husband's sin. Now, I'll admit, this is hard to understand what Jesus is talking about. And part of the reason it's hard is not because of the words on the page, but because of the broader story in the Bible about marriage, and particularly 1 Corinthians 7, which not only gives desertion as further grounds for divorce, but also teaches that divorce ends the marital bond, and so divorced people don't sin if they marry another. So it's hard to know precisely what Jesus means. But his big point is clear. In the kingdom of heaven, lifelong marriage is valued. Yes, because of sinfulness, some marriages will end in divorce. But this is a reality we push hard against. So what are we to do with Jesus' teaching? Jesus' point is not just 
saying no to divorce. His goal isn't that disciples manage to get through life without splitting up, yet the relationship is full of bitterness and resentments. Jesus' teaching means churches will be communities where we encourage faithfulness in marriage and singleness. Uh, to quote Hebrews 13, worshipping God means marriage should be honoured by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. How do we do this? How do we honour marriage? How, how do we keep the marriage bed pure? As a church, we celebrate godly marriages and godly singleness. We ask for help when things are hard. My wife and I have been stuck in the same cycle of argument and then icy silence for months. Can you help us? It can mean we have quiet words or, or strong words when we notice something. Oh, I noticed the dismissive way you, you addressed your wife's concerns. Could, could we talk about this? I notice you spend lots of time with X. Could we talk about that? I've been noticing how well you talk about your wife. That really encourages me. Thank you so much. It takes courage to have these conversations. They're the kind of conversations that require good, strong, healthy, deep relationships in our church. But as we grow in knowing God and loving one another together, these are the kind of conversations we need to learn to have, spurring each other to love and good deeds. I wonder how you're feeling as we listen to Jesus. I think for many of us there will be some guilt as we think about the things we've done, things we've looked at, the way we've treated people. At the start, we began thinking about God's big story of marriage, that God made humanity male and female in his image, and it all falls apart in Genesis 3, but the story doesn't end in Genesis 3. Throughout the Bible, marriage is a key picture for the relationship between God and his people. God is the faithful husband, even when his bride, the the people of Israel, are unfaithful. Adultery is a common metaphor for worshipping pretend gods. Ephesians 5 is a key passage to learn about marriage and how God calls husbands and wives to relate. But at the end of this section, Paul digs into this deep, big story of marriage. He quotes from Genesis 2 and says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. So two things for us to remember. One is the reason Jesus takes marriage and sexuality seriously why even looking lustfully needs serious action, why we must work on healthy marriages so divorce isn't even on the table, it's because faithfulness is central to who God is. Christ is the loving, faithful husband of his church. And so we reflect this in our faithfulness. But even better, we know this is what Jesus is like and this is point two. Point two, the real truth of marriage is not seen at weddings or family homes, it's seen here in church. And the good news is, unlike many husbands and wives whose eyes and hearts wander, who are callous and uncaring, Jesus isn't. Jesus is the faithful husband. And this is comforting good news for all who are sexual sinners. We may not have been faithful, but Jesus has. 
Just after Hebrews speaks of honouring the marriage bed, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Hebrews 13 draws together joyful contentment in marriage, contentment with finances and money and marriage and puts that all together about that's how we rely on God because God will always be with us. Knowing God is with us teaches us to be content with what he has given us. Jesus is not committing adultery in his heart. When we, his church, when we fail to be a spotless bride, Jesus doesn't look elsewhere. Jesus doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't show contempt. Jesus looks at us, his church, his bride, and says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I love you. In in love I died to make you pure and clean. Because of the cross, this is what he sees. And Jesus will never divorce his bride. He will never forsake his church, which gives us confidence to take our sin to Jesus, to repent of them, knowing he will never forsake us and then he will give us his spirit. He has given us his spirit to go on in strength to live for him. So let's pray, asking God to be doing this work in us. Please join me. Father God, we praise you because you are the faithful God. We thank you that you have given the church to be the bride of Christ and that Jesus, in love, you are faithful to us. Please make us a church where we encourage each other to be godly in marriage and singleness. May we be faithful and pure in our eyes and thoughts. Help us encourage those who are married to grow strong and healthy marriages. Help us be faithful in the situation you have put each of us in. Lord God, as we hear Jesus' words, we know we have not been faithful. We confess our sin and are so thankful that Jesus died to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord God, some of us have been deeply hurt in this area. We've been sinned against and feel shamed. We thank you that Jesus loves those who've been shamed, that he does not see what we feel as shame, but through the cross he covers our shame, and by faith we now share his glory. We give you thanks and praise for this truth. Amen.